Marcus Marcus controls the power and wealth of a vast military and religious empire. Yet one horrific crime threatens to destroy everything in his world. Addled by drugs and grief, Marcus Marcus begins a trans-dimensional journey that will ultimately force him to confront a dark and devastating truth. Chapter 14 A Sudden Eruption of Pain My afternoon appointment involved giving a speech to the youth of the Empire. This was an annual event that took place in the Hall of Heroes over in Stone City. And truth to be told, it gave me great pleasure to declaim to the young ones. Well, the festival of Fierna and Tierney had much frivolity and celebration. The last day of the festival was given over to events that marked the transition from licensed giddy rowdiness to the more serious matters of living our lives in a way that would strengthen and further ennoble the imperial sagin territories of Glake, the peninsula, Algalma, exterior, Algalma, interior, and the sundry territories. The youth of the Empire Day was one such affair. Traditionally, the event was dedicated to those sons and daughters of the nobility who were embarking on careers in the sage and civil service. My great-grandfather had, however, opened the sage administration to a limited number of offspring of the more powerful guild members. My father resented this innovation, but rather than curtail it, he expanded the guild quota and introduced a similar one for the commoners, with the pithy justification, all the better to bind the bastards to me. I travelled to Stone City in a ceremonial ancient petrol-powered contraption. Traditionally, a horse-drawn carriage conveyed my ancestors into Stone City, but ever since witnessing the first sacrifice of horses, I could not bear looking at the creatures. I travelled in the rumbling, petrol-guzzling, smoke-belching machine called an automobile. There was no overt security detail, but insect-sized drones buzzed above or on either side of my automobile, every one of them armed and alert. There was a ceremonial guard who walked on either side of the automobile, which turned along at a grand ten kilometres per hour. It was a slow journey to Stone City, but this allowed me to rest a while, have a few more pills, eat a meal, have a nap. There was even a commode in the trundling machine. Sometimes I would get out to stretch my legs, greet my subjects, while the drones buzzed angrily overhead and the guard crowded round me. But eventually I came to Stone City, and the automobile drew up in front of the Hall of Heroes. I marched in through the great doors, 
It was only a briefest hesitation to tip the doorman. Again, another ancient custom I simply did not understand. I strode up to the podium and looked over the vast reception hall. There was a couple of hundred young men and women, aged from their mid-teens to their early twenties. The youngsters who came from the guilds or patrician families had the relevant insignia emblazoned on their gowns. The offspring of commoners each had a sprig of blossom pinned to their top hat. This annual meeting with the next generation of administrators was normally a fun and relaxing occasion. As usual, the students fell silent as I gazed at them. They were understandably awestruck to be in such proximity to one who ruled over every moment of their life. One whose ancestry was packed with heroes, conquerors, sages and the semi-divine. One who had personally routed the forces of anarchy unleashed by the deadly fire. Over the years, my speech had pretty much retained the same shape, phrases and title. The joy of responsibility. Yet, where my ancestors had demanded the audience file in and out in silence, I always ended my speech by inviting questions. I enjoyed this informal sharing of jokes, listening to ideas and responding to queries. Retainers would quietly walk around the hall, offering champagne and cleaning up any spillages. That they also secretly recorded every word and expression for later analysis by my security chief's team of psychoanalysts was something that I had long learned not to think about preferring to believe that the afternoon was a truly spontaneous, relaxed and honest encounter between ruler and ruled. For days after such a get-together, I would retain a warm sense of melancholy contentment, an urge to be young and innocent again, touched with the satisfaction of having brought pleasure to those who still are. Today, however, I found myself unable to look on my audience with any joy. My earlier walk with Gath had left me feeling flat and unsure of myself. The speech was a perfect opportunity to lift my spirits again, but my confidence and sense of self-worth had been punctured. I made that fatal mistake that people of mature years sometimes do when talking to the young. Instead of enjoying their company and sharing knowledge, such sad grey heads attempt to look impressive and important and end up looking foolish and pathetic. The best that could be said about my pompous speech was that I made good use of all the rhetorical tricks that I had learned as a student. It was a speech worthy of the patrician administrators of my empire, full of imagery and alliteration and and was truly excruciating to experience. I began the speech well enough, but my thoughts were wandering. I thought of Gath, and forgot my lines. 
I looked at my notes and began again, but a dull pain in my chest began to distract me. I gazed at the audience, trying to focus once more on all the young women and men, but found myself staring at the retainers in the hall, which in turn led to thoughts on treason and intrigue, murder and punishment. I thought of the clown in Glake City, who dressed as Captain Errol, had carried out terrible slaughter, only to grin and wink at his executioner. Was his bloody crime a mere happenchance, the product of a deranged mind, or was it something more? I stopped speaking. The young men and women stood silent. One of the retainers lifted her arm to her mouth, whispered into her wristband. I shook myself. Excuse me, ladies and gentlemen, I am distracted by how fine you all look. I looked at my notes again, but the black lines before me refused to form into words. I smiled. Of course there was no danger. With Ifdeck and Estella overseeing Glake, as well as the peninsula and Agalma, interior and exterior, there was little opportunity for would-be conspirators to weave and whisper intrigues and dissension. Moreover, who would replace me? replace me? I asked the lads and lasses. It is something you need to think about. If you wish to help run this mighty empire, who would replace me? I nodded and tapped the lectern with my knuckles. What followed could, if one was feeling charitable, be called a history lesson. An angry, self-justifying rant might be a better description. Regardless, once started, my mouth kept going. Unique among the domains of the nine princes who rule in Feshka, I began. Mine is the only one to have remained over the centuries in the control of one family. Though what constitutes my family is, like blood, a matter of great fluidity. Apt to spread and spill everywhere, if you understand. If you have paid attention in your history classes, you will notice that offspring, siblings, cousins, second cousins, and thirty-second cousins four times removed have all been ruling princes. Yet each, and this is important, boys and girls, each has shared a direct blood link to the original sage and sage and the harvester. However, recent history has seen the liquidity of my family gradually thicken and clot until a point was reached where, for the last eight generations, the royal position has been handed directly from father to son, all the way down to me. This linear tenure has come to be seen as natural as the wind and the rain and the rising and falling of Fierna and Tiene. 
The real danger has always come here in the peninsula. Only three lords of the peninsula have ever intrigued and gouged their way to the position of prince, and none succeeded in securing the succession to their offspring. The last peninsular prince died slowly and in much pain over 300 years ago. Yet the truth remains that the great patriarchs of the peninsula can all trace their lineage to the moment when the twitching testes of a past prince spumed seed and glory into the belly of the Lady of Pleasure. Because of such long-gone copulations, the great families of the peninsula believed they deserved respect and fear. They were also more than willing to give refuge to would-be claimants from Glake itself, many of whom had gone on to win princely power and to pass it on to succeeding generations. Yet, by the time of my takeover, the influence of the lords of the peninsula had thinned and faded like a once bright tapestry now held together by spider webs and dust. The great prize of becoming the ruling prince of the sage and family no longer concerned them. The later generations spent more time fighting each other over such frivolities as hunting rights, mistresses, purity of blood. As for the concubines of the princes, they could be relied on to keep the lords in line. The last of these ladies was Christiana the Cheerful, who turned the activities of the palace complexes, rendition and termination pit into an exuberant spectator sport that often descended into an orgy of audience participation. The gods alone know what else I'd have uttered if my chest had not suddenly erupted in boiling pain. With a gasp I buckled over and fell off the podium into a sea of footwear and hemlines. Some students were running to me, others running away. One tripped over me. I could feel the soft shape of her breast crushed against my cheek. Incredibly, my penis thickened even as the pain in my chest intensified and my body braced itself for the sound of a gunshot. More bodies tumbled on top of me. For a moment I could not breathe. And then sudden lightness as the retainers pulled fallen students off me. I gulped down air. Both my chest and my dick calmed down. What happened? I sputtered. Where's Captain Errol? Are we under attack? The man kneeling beside me held a squat, ugly gun and smelled of spilled champagne. Your Excellency tripped, he said. But we're clearing the hall just in case. I sat up, grunted with pain. My chest hurts bad. The guy with the gun put a hand on my royal shoulder. Please try not to move, Your Excellency. Help is on the way. The hall was soon empty of all students. A few of the retainers remained, but now that my safety was an overt issue, they'd mostly been replaced with thick-necked uniformed security guards, 
carrying an assortment of evilly efficient looking weaponry. Inside my rib cage, the pain played games with me, retreating to a faint numbness, then erupting again. Strapped to a gurney, I was rolled out the hall and into an armoured truck. An oxygen mask was attached to my face. A needle pricked my arm. The truck was filled with bright light, angry whispers and the reek of sweat and panic. More gun gooks were squeezing in. One of them stuck a muzzle on a paramedic's face. Let us in, bitch, or I'll squeeze the fucking trigger. I was tempted to laugh. If anybody started shooting in this confined space, the ricocheting bullets would turn us all into fucking mince. I zoned out, saw pretty colours before my eyes, then zoned back in again. The truck was moving. To the side of me, I saw the thin, gaunt face of my security chief. She was having a heated discussion with one of the medics. Why are you not taking His Excellency to the palace? The arms house is only a few minutes from here, ma'am, the good doc stammered, was glancing at the hunk of trained killer standing behind Estella. It would take ten minutes, maybe more, to get to the palace. Is it that bad? We do not know, ma'am. We can't detect anything yet. I thought the almshouse was for the commons. True, ma'am, but there's also a wing dedicated to private clients. It is suitable for His Excellency. How soon do we get there? We're almost there, ma'am. Estella turned to the muscle behind her. I want a full security lockdown in the almshouse. Yes, ma'am. Then she turned back to the lady medic. Anything happens to his excellency and you'll be breaking stones in the asteroid belt. I started to drift off again, but not before an ugly, thick, sweet reek filled my nose. The scent of the paramedic shitting herself. Thanks for listening to the latest chapter of Marcus Marcus and Hurting Heart. Be sure to tell all your friends, family and ancient enemies about the story. If you like it, rate it, review it, pass on the word and subscribe on Podbean, iTunes, Player or your favourite podcast app. Drop me a line on Twitter at Havering Rab. If you want to know more about what I do, check out my website, rabfultonstories.weebly.com.